thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 133 of The Real Food Real, we're joined by Angela Poff, research associate from Dom D'Agostino's Laboratory of Nutritional and Metabolic Medicine. Today, we explore the latest research into cancer and the ketogenic diet. Hi, Angela, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Steph. I'm happy to be on. Excellent. So let's start with a little bit about yourself and your academic background. Sure. Um, So I have a bachelor's degree in um, biochemistry and molecular biology, and um, I did some developmental neuroscience research in um, undergrad, and that's really when I fell in love with academic scientific research, and I realized that that was the career that I wanted to pursue. And so I applied to uh, PhD programs um, around the country and ended up and choosing to come down to the University of South Florida here in Tampa. And um, so I entered the PhD program in biomedical sciences here. And then depending how we do it, depending on what lab you end up joining, you enter a specific department and that kind of specializes your education further. And so um, that department and then the concentration of my doctoral degree was then molecular pharmacology and physiology. And because I chose to join uh, Dr. D'Agostino's lab and I was working on a cancer biology project, uh, that was what I ended up spending most of my doctoral research and education in, uh, specifically looking at cancer biology. And um, I worked on looking at the ketogenic diet and hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, in a a mouse model of metastatic cancer. And... I've actually stayed here in the lab. I really enjoy the kind of work that we do and the various projects that we have going on. And so I stayed as a postdoc here in the lab and then transitioned into a research associate position. Um, And so I've been at the University of South Florida uh, ever since I came. And um, I really just enjoy the kind of work that we're doing. Yeah, looking forward to hearing more. So before we talk about the ketogenic side of things, can you talk about... um, cancer specifically as a metabolic disease and what that means? Sure. Um, So it's a bit of a loaded question because it's a very complicated topic. Um, And of course, so if you would open any classic cancer textbook or, you know, general textbook where cancer is mentioned, you really see, you know, uh, classically cancer is described as a genetic disease. And it absolutely is a genetic disease. There are undoubtedly... um, gene mutations in uh, the nuclear genome of cancer cells that drive this cancer phenotype or allow the cancer cells to behave in ways that we then call and recognize as cancer. Um, But this idea and kind of reemergence of this notion that um, cancer is probably as much a metabolic disease as it is a genetic disease has really kind of come from um, recognition of the really important role that 
metabolism and um, uh, energy metabolism and also metabolism to kind of support the, what I would call biosynthetic needs of the tumor. So as the tumor is growing, it's having to make all of these new um, you know, lipids and proteins and new DNA and stuff like that. So all of these metabolic pathways are extremely important and just as altered and regulated and changed in cancer as the nuclear genome is. And the idea that um, many people are putting forward is that, in fact, many tumors may actually primarily be a metabolic disease such that there is dysregulation or damage to metabolism first. And then that is actually the initiating cause of the cancer origination. And then you subsequently see this acquisition of the genetic mutations that also contribute to cancer being cancerous. And so it it's basically just this idea that maybe in many or even most tumors, there's actually an upstream metabolic dysfunction that um, induces the cancer phenotype. And so that's this idea um, of cancer as a metabolic disease. Yeah, fascinating. So to clarify, do you think the metabolic condition switches on those gene mutations? So there's absolutely evidence that it Mm. goes both ways. Okay. So um, we know that you can alter metabolism and um, cause changes that then are able to turn on those those mutations. And the reverse is true. The acquisition of many of these mutations also control the metabolic pathways. Mm. And so it's really, honestly, it's very difficult and perhaps even... Uh, fruitless to try to separate metabolism from genetics because honestly we're talking about the same pathways so the same um you know proteins that are are mutated in tumors are driving both gene signaling and metabolic changes um and so it kind of the difference though just comes back to this idea that the initial insult rather than this kind of random acquisition of damaged genes um, that rather we have an acquisition of damaged metabolism and perhaps specifically damage to the mitochondria, which of course probably all of your listeners know is the um, organelle in our cells that makes energy. Mm. And then that energy is required to control and provide um, you know, the energy currency to drive all cellular processes. And kind of the key link there is when you have energy failure within a cell, it becomes very difficult to maintain normal function and protect the nuclear genome. So DNA repair is a very energetically demanding process. And if you have energy failure, you're not capable of um, maintaining normal cellular function. And maybe that is why we see that these cells can then acquire these genetic mutations and then go on to become cancerous. And that's that's kind of the idea. So like I've said, it's a little bit complicated, mm. um, but that's the overall arching idea. Yeah, fascinating research. So just to backtrack for a second, do you have any thoughts on why when you open those textbooks it talks about being 
only a genetic disease? Is this old science? And then what's the timeline like between what we now know about the metabolic disease side of things? Sure. So it's very interesting because actually um, this abnormal metabolism was one of the first things that was ever really known about cancer. So very early in the story of of people looking at cancer and doing cancer research, Dr. Odo Warburg in um, the earlier uh, half of the uh, 20th century found that tumors will and cancer cells very consistently have altered metabolism. Mm. And that phenotype that he described, which is called the Warburg effect, um, is that tumors will upregulate some kind of what we would consider more primitive energy pathways. They're utilized in our cells normally, um, but and it, that would be glycolysis and fermentation. So you've maybe heard those you know, terms before, but um, these pathways are typically used in our, our healthy tissues um, only when oxygen is limited. So uh, perhaps during like extreme exercise or something like that. Normally, at the end of these pathways, at the end of glycolysis at least, you would then continue shunting your um, metabolites that are going through these pathways into the mitochondria. But what you see in most cancer cells is a difference in the amount of metabolites that actually enter the mitochondria. It's reduced. And rather, um, that pyruvate is converted into lactate. And so you have this kind of shunted, more primitive um, energy metabolism that is less reliant on the mitochondria to make energy. And and this is abnormal. Um, and Orberg in the early 20th century said, well, this must be the cause of cancer. It's very odd that cancer cells would be... Um, would be choosing to use these pathways. And so that was actually, that's called the Warburg hypothesis. So he hypothesized that um, the you have irreversible damage to the mitochondria, so this upstream metabolic dysfunction. And then that allows for, basically creates this environment that allows for cancer to develop. And um, now what's it's the story is a little bit complicated because that was known for a long time that this is very consistently seen in cancer. But then when we just, and I say we, um, not me, but back in the, you know, fifties and to seventies, perhaps when they started, um, really discovering that the nucleus and the genome was chocked full of these mutations in cancer cells. I think it just kind of became this, like clearly, well, this has to be, you know, the cause of cancer. Clearly, this is a major discovery. It was a huge difference between cancer cells and normal cells. And so everyone kind of jumped into this new finding and said, we've got to start studying this now. And it's really dominated cancer research for the past 50 years. Um, But there's been a reemergence within probably the past 10 or 15 years of interest back in this idea of metabolism because, well, in part because a lot of the um, efforts to try to target these genetic mutations have really not been nearly as successful as hoped for. Um, And then also just furthering our knowledge base, understanding how important metabolism is in this entire condition. And to complicate the story a little bit more, essentially, you know, 
Warburg thought the cancer cells must be making energy this way because their mitochondria are damaged. But actually what we see is that there are many benefits to, to doing this as well that don't necessarily require the mitochondria to be damaged so that the tumor would want to do this. And there's actually lots of benefits. And that's kind of the typical view, I think, of cancer metabolism um, is not so much that it is a result of damage to the mitochondria, but that it is a um, adaptive um, kind of phenotype that the tumor takes on to benefit itself. Yeah, fascinating. Quite complicated, but um, yeah. you're doing a very good job of helping uh, us uh, laymans understand it. So are all cancers considered a symptom of metabolic dysfunction or is the research showing it's more connected to certain types? So um, there's definitely not been um, any kind of conclusive mm. large-scale effort to demonstrate this or not. I would say that the data supports that metabolism is consistently altered. Mm. And I've never seen an example of any cancer type where metabolism is not altered. Does that mean that it is of metabolic origin? Not necessarily. Mm. So again, remember I said that a lot of the field currently views that this is just, you know, a, an adaptation of the tumor. Tumors are incredibly... Um, smart for lack of a better word they they do um they do things that would benefit them in any way um and undoubtedly this alteration in metabolism can help the tumor in different ways um but i do think that the data really supports that this is a very viable um path to the origination of many tumors so mm -hmm. i think in my opinion, it's probably as likely that tumors can arise from this kind of path where you have metabolism being dysfunctional first, and then it leads to a cancer phenotype. I think that's as likely, perhaps even more likely in a lot of cases than the kind of typical view, which is this um, random acquisition of these genetic mutations that then allow cancer to occur. So that's just kind of based on my opinion of the data out there. I do not think all tumors arise from some metabolic dysfunction. You can clearly create tumors um, by specifically altering genes initially. And that's, you can even do that, you know, artificially. Mm. And um, so it is not perhaps as clear and as, as well laid out as maybe some people kind of present or suggest. Um, or would like to believe, but um, I think it's a very, I think there's a very good chance that many tumors, maybe even most tumors, arise in this way and are of metabolic origin. I don't think all of them are. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> so You're I wanted to talk about um, things from a dietary perspective. Now I'm very aware that the the research is still in the investigatory stage. So um, I just wanted to get you to talk about your research specifically um, and how you think diet and that ketogenic approach can help these mechanisms that you speak of. Yeah, so 
Um, essentially, you know, I mentioned that um, many tumors have this altered metabolism. Mm -hmm. And I said that, um, that they upregulate these pathways known as glycolysis and fermentation. Mm -hmm. Well, the energy molecule that runs those pathways, that feeds into those pathways, is glucose. Mm -hmm. And, of course, glucose comes from dietary carbohydrate, uh, primarily. You, you can, of course, make glucose as well through gluconeogenesis. But, you know, in a typical person that's eating a high-carbohydrate diet, the vast majority of their blood glucose is coming from their food, unless they're skipping meals and things like that. Yeah. So, um, when you kind of, when it's recognized that many tumors kind of have this, um, at least they benefit from having glucose in excess so that it can efficiently run these pathways that are very consistently upregulated in tumors. Then it kind of becomes an obvious idea, why don't we try to limit glucose availability to mm. the tumor? And um, and that's the idea, the, the initial idea behind the ketogenic diet was, well, of course, probably as your listeners know, the ketogenic diet is a very low carbohydrate diet and induces this metabolic state of ketosis where your glucose is lowered and then um, you actually end up producing these you know, molecules called ketones and your body kind of runs on this dual fuel system, glucose and ketones, rather than excess glucose or just primarily glucose. And so it, it kind of makes sense on, um, you know, a, a 30,000 foot view why you might say, okay, the ketogenic diet, we could try that. And of course the diet has a, a very long history of use um, clinically in pediatric epilepsy. So a lot of what we know about the diet actually comes from that community. And um, what's interesting is um, you know, when this was starting to be investigated, it was becoming clear that this is um, this is effective in many animal models. So, the, as you mentioned, you know, the research is definitely in the investigatory stage. There have not been large-scale human trials or conclusions from human trials um, yet, and we're moving towards that, which is exciting. Um, but I would say about probably probably 80% or so of the preclinical studies that have looked at the ketogenic diet in various models of cancer have reported a beneficial effect. So that's really encouraging. Um, but what's interesting is we're seeing uh, that the story is more complicated than just this simple reduction of glucose availability to the tumor. And when you think about the many, many things that are changing metabolically and physiologically, when you can, you know, change over to this new metabolic state, it's not perhaps surprising that there are actually many potential ways that this effect is being induced. And um, so there's, I could kind of run through a list if you're interested, but um, you know, essentially we're seeing that. There's many ways ketones themselves in certain models can elicit direct anti-cancer effects. This is definitely not universal. Um, there are some uh, cancer cells that do not exhibit this. There's even a small number that seem to benefit from ketones. So again, it's really important that we study this quite well before 
you know, it um, goes into clinical trials and into clinics. But the majority of the, the studies that have looked at this um, specifically, I would say, have revealed that in, in certain models, ketones themselves can even hurt the cancer directly. And it's really not clear why, um, but they are known to alter gene expression. They're known to inhibit inflammation. They have a variety of signaling properties that might kind of account for that. So honestly, there's probably a dozen different mechanisms that are maybe coming into play um, when we talk about why the ketogenic diet might be helping in the situations that it is helping. Yeah, I think that's really important to clarify because, you know, it's become more of a popular conversation, especially in the last few years. And I think largely we hear about the the role of glucose, obviously, as you say, with upregulating glycolysis and fermentation. But clearly there's a lot more to it which needs to be studied further. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts, though, on the emergence of exogenous ketones. Um, I'm sure you're well aware of what's happened in that space in the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Have you been involved in any of the research looking at the difference between nutritional ketosis versus it, the consumption of exogenous ketones? And if so, you know, what that changes in the cancer situation? Uh, yes, I have mm. um, done research on that. It is much, much more primitive than mm. even the diet. So um, this is very preliminary. There are only a small number of studies that even have begun to look at this. Of course, it's very novel. Um, I did perform a study um, looking at what was is a ketone ester. And um, so this is a, it's not the type of um, ketone supplement that's currently the ketone commercially available. Right. Yeah. Not the ketone salts. They're, they're more potent. So um, <laughs> yeah, yes, rocket fuel. Exactly. Um, so they go through a little bit more, uh, safety testing and things like that before that could be utilized. But um, but we use it in our mouse model. And, you know, keep in mind this is a one mouse model yeah. of one type of cancer. Um, but in our model, um, the ketone ester just applied on top of a standard rodent chow, which is a higher carbohydrate uh, diet, was actually very, the effect was very similar to when we, we tried the ketogenic diet. Mm. So, um, but it kind of makes sense though, because we do know that exogenous ketones can mimic many of the metabolic and physiologic effects of the diet. Mm. Um, not, I, I would not expect that they mimic all of them by any means, but perhaps even more than we would initially think they would, because you know, one of the most obvious is, well, you're not, you're not going to be affecting glucose, right? Like if you're not changing the diet, but in reality, we see very consistently that when we um, administer exogenous ketones in animal models, you have a high, a glucose lowering effect. And this is very interesting. It has been reported by other groups as well. Dr. Richard Beach has shown this with um, a ketone ester that he utilizes. Um, and we don't know why <laughs> it happens, but it's very consistent. So even kind of the overt changes in glucose and ketones are much more similar than perhaps you would expect. And then one thing I would keep in mind is that we've been over maybe the past five years, especially 
um, really recognizing that a lot of the benefits of ketosis and probably the ketogenic diet as well probably do come from the ketones themselves. And I say a lot, not all by any means, but many do. And um, that is because these molecules are, are much more than energy. They are functional and signaling molecules that have direct effects in the body. And, um, and they probably carry out um, a lot of those uh, mechanisms that we see in these um, studies where we're seeing effects of the diet and various disorders. And so perhaps it's not as surprising that you would get some mimicking um, of the efficacy with the exogenous ketones as the diet. But, you know, again, it's very early mm. in that story. We have a lot left to um, study before yeah. we can really understand it. Yeah, I, I absolutely appreciate that. So are you aware of any research in this space on the ketone salts? Um, with cancer specifically? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, not in animal model. Okay. Um, in, um, in cell culture, uh, which is, you know, when you grow cancer cells in petri dishes, um, you, when you look at using ketones in that condition, you have to use what is essentially the ketone salts. Um, Cause it's just a, the very basic molecule, just a beta hydroxybutyrate bound to some, you know, mineral. And so sodium BHB is typically the um, ketone that is utilized in those cell culture studies. And of course, keep in mind, cell culture is kind of the lowest level of like, convincing mm. evidence right so when we see something in cells we think okay that's interesting that might mean something and then we if can we see it in you know rodents and then can we see it you know in humans and so it, there's a hierarchy but it's still in very informative um so i will say that the studies that have you know kind of looked at um for example i mentioned there are studies that had shown that some cancer cells can be damaged from ketones. Those do utilize ketone salts because um, it's a cell culture experiment. Mm. So, um, but I am not aware of any animal like in vivo. So when we call it an actual intact mm. organism, um, studies that have utilized the salts. The salts, you know, they they will elevate your your ketones by maybe one millimolar or so for a few hours, um, and you know that's that you know that's what they're set out to do. Um, but you know that compared to like what the diet can induce, maybe two to three millimolar chronically. You know, it, it's a different kind of situation, right? So it it would need to be studied to kind of really see if it would be potent potent enough stimulus of ketosis to actually um, mimic the effects in a state like a cancer model. So. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to the research there. And I think, again, really important to clarify because these ketone salts are not like everywhere at the moment, I think, at least yeah, in my world. Yeah. And there yeah, are a lot of claims being made. And yeah. and I think, yeah, let's let's look at the research first, as always. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> cool. So what about the role of insulin? You know, we've been hearing for some time now that it does have this sort of growth factor-like effect on tumours. Um, 
what are your thoughts there and then how does this relate to nutritional ketosis? I think it's a big part of the story. Mm. So um, insulin is absolutely a potent growth factor for tumors. Um, Often tumors will have very high levels of insulin receptor expressed on their membranes and also IGF-1 receptors. And so insulin is known to drive tumor growth in many different cases. And, um, And I think that probably a lot of kind of benefits in general that are observed with ketosis might have to do with this suppression of glucose, but also insulin, which of course, you know, insulin follows glucose. So, um, you know, you don't always see a very potent reduction in like basal glucose levels. So typically you do see that it's reduced, but it's not like, you know, some people when they talk about the diet, or especially when they talk about it in the, in the sense of cancer, they say it like, oh, it's completely starving cancer glucose. Mm. And that's, you're not going to get your glucose, you know, down to very minimal levels with the diet. You wouldn't want to. That would be dangerous, right? Um, but you do see kind of this modest reduction in glucose. What I think you're actually most, probably most importantly doing is you're not spiking your glucose and insulin three to four times a day when you have oh, a carbohydrate. <laughs> oh, six, yes, exactly. Um, so I think that that part, that you know, that kind of uh, stabilization um, mm. of your glucose and insulin through the day is probably as important as this kind of overt, you know, overall actual reduction of glucose availability. And, um, and yeah, just considering how we know that insulin stimulates tumor growth, Mm. you know, I I think it's in those, in those models where the diet is effective, I think it's probably playing a a big role. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Good. So just in terms of where the research is at the moment and, you know, what we are starting to see in these animal models, um, what do you think the timeline looks like moving forward for the change in the treatment of cancer or at least the recognition of the application of the ketogenic diet? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's been very encouraging that this conversation has gotten a lot more tension mm. over the past even, you know, since I got into this field, you know, when I started, it was extremely fringe and, um, you know, not many people were talking about it. It was very mm. uncommon to hear of um, physicians who have even heard of this. And, and now the conversation has really grown. And that's because over the past few years, we've had lots of new research coming out in preclinical, you know, models kind of supporting that, yeah, we need to investigate this further. And so because of that, now we probably have maybe close to 15 clinical trials across the United States. And and I know that there are other trials going on in Europe and elsewhere as well, um, evaluating the diet in different cancer models. A lot of it right now is still um, in brain cancer, because that's where most of the preclinical work has been. And then also, you know, brain cancer, unfortunately, you know, standard therapies are quite lacking for that. Mm. So that makes makes it a good candidate, right, for trying something new and a little bit out of the box. And then also, um, you know, kind of 
late stage metastatic patients where unfortunately there's they're kind of post chemo post radiation and they are still recurring and and there's not much that can be done with those individuals either which is quite bad but so most of the work in clinical trials right now that are are looking in those patients but you know i'm hearing um hearing of new trials kind of in progress being written up as you know for new projects or um i hear from a lot of um physicians just wanting to learn more I think that uh, just overall, it's incredible that we're now in the cancer kind of community saying, okay, actually maybe diet does matter mm. because for a long time, it's just been told to patients that eat whatever you can to get in calories. And um, while I understand the, you know, the concern about cancer patients losing weight, cause that can be very yeah. dangerous, especially in late stage you know, we need to be smart about how we're preventing that weight loss and that dangerous weight loss and, and how, you know, diet is playing a role in all of this. And so, you know, I think that the the, the wheels are, are turning and um, I'm very grateful to see that more studies are being done. Um, and I think that it's growing every day. And, you know, we can't, it really can't be utilized clinically by and large until we get those trials. Mm. And so, um, you know, it, it's critical. It's critical for the field. And, uh, you know, I think just because we're on the topic, I'd like to just make sure everyone's aware. I know I'm pretty stuck with just explaining the research and everything, yeah. but, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. Mm. I, do, I do not treat patients or give advice. And so, but, you know, if someone's interested in this information, you can always go talk to your oncologist about this and, and see what they say and see, you know, if they're willing to, to listen to, you know, your interest or, or see if they can help you in any way where that's concerned. But, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, no, I appreciate you clarifying that still, you know, fantastic in terms of the fact that the conversation started and that ball is rolling. So sure. very exciting time. Just uh, one or two final questions before we let you go, um, are there any other therapies that you're researching at the moment with regards to cancer? Um, so our lab is doing work in um, cancer cachexia. And so I kind of just alluded to this issue, which is cachexia being the wasting, um, you know, primarily of concern, this like the muscle wasting mm. that occurs, especially in late stage or metastatic cancer patients. And, you know, that contributes significantly to morbidity and mortality in, in these patients. And we have a really fantastic PhD student in the lab, Andrew Kutnick, who is doing some really incredible work um, characterizing this condition in our model and then testing um, the potential for ketones or ketosis to slow that wasting. And so it kind of makes sense in the um, evolutionary role of ketosis, which is in part to basically avoid us having to break down our muscle in order to supply glucogenic amino acids to fuel the brain during starvation. And more recently, there have been some papers showing that ketones, you know, might have these kind of specific effects wherein they can slow catabolism or muscle loss in a catabolic state. And so that's some interesting work that's going on in our lab right now regarding 
ketosis in cancer, but not even actually looking at effect on tumor, looking at effect on preserving the health and vitality of our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Lots going on. And where to next for you in terms of the research? Are you, are you on a current project or moving on to something else? Um, so I am actually doing a significant amount of work looking at um, comparing kind of effects of the exogenous ketones to the diet. So like mm. I said, we have a lot left to understand just in a healthy, normal state. You know, where are we seeing, you know, overlapping effects? Where What's what's the same? What's, the, what's different between these two um, tools to induce ketosis? And that's what I view exogenous ketones as. I view them as another tool in the toolbox to induce ketosis mm. um, and it they may be useful in certain scenarios they may not in other scenarios but we have to do our due diligence to understand how they're affecting our physiology um, in a healthy state before we can kind of you know continue further looking at um, different pathologies so I'm, I'm doing a lot of, of that work right now. Wow, can't wait to hear more. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing your research and obviously your thoughts on this space. So very grateful for your time. Um, do you think, yeah, as you said, it's best for someone that wants to learn more to speak to their oncologist or is there anywhere that you can yeah. direct them to you guys online? Um, so... Obviously, if it's a if it's a patient, absolutely, mm. you know, speak to your to your doctor. If this is just someone who's interested in this story, you know, there's a lot of good information online. Um, I have a Facebook page where I like to share kind of the latest research that's out there, and you can just look me up under Angela Poff PhD. Um, also, Dr. D'Agostino mm -hmm. has a website ketonutrition.org, mm -hmm. um, and he is always collecting resources and links that's kind of a gold mine there for information yeah, for sure. so i would say check that out too if you just want to learn more awesome thank you so much for your time today angela it's been great to have you on the show thanks steph it was really fun this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash the wellness couch Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.